Hey everybody, welcome to Ducks Watch Together. I'm Josh. And I am here also. And on today's episode, we talk about movies that feature our greatest film, Fears, Part 2. I'm not re-recording that. We can leave it in. The Josh Picks. Yeah, the Josh Picks, yeah. The Josh Picks. I shouldn't throw you under the bus. That's fine. You can throw me right under the bus this time. It's not your fault. I thought that you picked two... I thought that your picks were appropriate. Yeah. And then... I knew what I was getting with one of them, and I was very thrown off by the other one. <laughs> um, so this month, we picked movies that represented thematically uh, films that have something to do with some of our greatest fears. Uh, in the last episode, we talked about two solid films, Kramer versus Kramer and uh, Terminator 2. Uh, an episode which I think will be significantly longer than this one. Josh, I think that I think that <laughs> here's the thing. Oh, okay. okay. I don't yes. like. I don't think you're. I think one pick was weird. I think that the another pick is a pick that at some point we would have to do. Like okay, yeah. because like film Twitter, film internet, film everything won't stop talking about it yeah. for for years. Yeah. For years, I've been like, I don't want to watch this. <laughs> And now here I am, having kind of watched it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get there. Uh, we're continuing our chronological <laughs> journey through the movies. <laughs> so, Josh, you, you're, don't, don't, don't downpick your picks. We are here to hit the hard-hitting facts. All right, well, let's start by talking about a movie that doesn't exist. Yeah, Richard III. <laughs> 1995's Richard III. Um, a movie that... I, truth be told, before I went down the whole the rabbit hole of figuring out what movies I wanted to pick, had not really heard of. Like I knew Ian McKellen, who is the star of this movie as Richard the Third, had a very famous uh, version of Richard the Third that was done in the early '90s on um, on stage in London on the West End, and. Uh, I did not realize that it had been translated to film. Um, And so when I found this, I was like, well, here we go. So talking about what actually is my great, what fear is being represented in this movie for me. um, And I think this is one that kind of hits home. Um, Kylie did her fears. That was one really internal and one kind of like external and kind of like, for lack of better words, like a fun fear. Well, like, I did, I did a, uh, like more like a serious, genuine fear, yeah. and then like a fun fear. And so mine, I went with like serious fears for both, and one is very internal, <laughs> and one is very external. And that's that makes for an interesting day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and my greatest fear represented in this uh, film is the rise of fascism. Yeah, we could have had a snake movie. <laughs> We could have, we could be talking about snakes on a plane right now. <laughs> Keenan Thompson. <laughs> Listen, I thought we were gonna talk about puppets. We also didn't talk about puppets. What are robots? But <laughs> so, jo- Josh, don't like down. Don't like talk down about your picks. Okay. Um... It makes some sense. Like, no, your fear makes sense. It makes some sense you picked this one because I doubt you like knew what this film was. Yeah, no, I really didn't know what this film was, other did, than did it you was know Richard the Third. Do you so, like? Yes, okay. yes, I know Richard the Third, and I understand 
why they made the choices that they made. So what this film is, is that it is set in a alternate history where during World War II or like the rise to World War II, England... It's 1930s is how they describe it. 1930s England... Um, is taken over by a fascist dictator, um, who is Richard III. Um, And I think that that is an interesting, good concept. Shakespeare has been done over and over and over again, and I think that a lot of times artists try to find unique ways to frame it so that audience members can connect to it. Yeah, I called it a contemporary adaptation, and Anne told me that World War II is contemporary, but it's more contemporary than, like, Shakespearean. Like, World War II is more contemporary than the War of the Roses, which is the final battle, which is what's going on in this film, like, in, like, actual history. Yeah. Um, So... Yeah, I'm, when I was researching this film, I was like, what is currently something that I'm very, very fearful of, especially being an American and living in America, is that we have gone through and maybe are still in a pre-fascist state. And to watch a, um, a leader rise upon fascist tendencies was terrifying. Um, and so I was watching and I was looking through some films and like, of course, stuff like Schindler's List popped up, and there are other, like, really heavy, dramatic, like, interpretations of it. And I went with this one. One, because I hadn't seen it. Um, and two, I thought that this would be, I think, an interesting... I thought it would be an interesting way to come at the topic because I knew that the plot and arc of Richard III is about the rise of the dictator you know so yeah my bi- the the thing i'm gonna say is my biggest like i shouldn't say my biggest criticism but my main my main one of my main criticisms of this film in what it's trying to do is also like one of my biggest praises for the film so it's like it's like a double-sided sword <laughs> where we're looking at the rise of this uh fascist dictator really only in the the points of politics or like mm-hmm. bloodlines and all of that. Yeah. We're looking at it only from there. Mm-hmm. My side complaint is we're only looking at it from there and we don't, we never like look at the yeah. social aspects of it. Yeah. And that's because the play doesn't ever look at yeah. the social aspects yeah. of it. And so like for me, like it's both a interesting thing and it's also a, kind of a negative thing with this maybe, and maybe like, someone with a little bit more dapped hand does something a little bit different. But it's both my biggest criticism and one of my bigger praises. Um, I think that that I have a really similar thought and process on there as well because when I was watching it, I was like, I want to know more about how this is affecting the people of England. Mm -hmm. And I think that is actually a flaw in making this choice because the play itself is not so interested in that. And when you're doing it in the past and you're doing it as an examination of a specific historical king. British monarchy. British monarchy. You're like, cool, I only I want to focus on just the little aspect of it that I need to understand. But when we have this broader cultural context to what's happening, 
I think we want to see that explored in a really healthy way. This movie seems like something that is a bit of a missed opportunity mm-hmm. um, rather than something that ends up being really engaging and interesting. And that's kind of the issue with Shakespeare, Shakespeare adaptations is that you either you either go like straight from the play and you use all the same lines of dialogue and you don't change that which is kind of what this does, mm-hmm. or you adapt it for teens, and it's Clueless. <laughs> no, no, Clueless isn't Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> Clueless is Emma. It's um, Ten Things I Hate About You. Ten Things I Hate About You, or She's the Man. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, a movie that I referenced that very few people have seen. I've never even heard of it. I've referenced it on this podcast. It's, it's fine. Uh, nobody's seen it or heard of it. It's Othello, <laughs> Othello. Okay. but it's Mackay Pfeiffer and Julia Stiles. And he's on Julia Styles in doing this. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and he's on the basketball team. Mm. Um, Anyway, that actually brings me to a point that I wanted to talk about as well. Like no other decade loves Shakespeare uh, as much as the '90s. I mean, sure, when he was alive, he was all the rage. But like, it's the '90s. The '90s (laughs) loved Shakespeare. Like so many adaptations. And um, updates from this film, which is not really in the cultural zeitgeist anymore, to the all the teen adaptations that we talked about, to even the straight Kenneth adaptations. Brana. And Kenneth Branagh has this huge thing with Much Ado About Nothing, and he's got a version of Hamlet, and like it's just Shakespeare's scene. And then there's uh, Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo Plus Juliet. Like it's just it's everywhere. Like it, he was just this really this ubiquitous figure back in the culture again. And I don't know why. I mean, like, cool, like, yeah, classic lit. But, like, why was Shakespeare and classic lit, like, really big again in the 90s? I don't know if I totally have this other reason than just... It was time. It was time. It was time to do that. I mean, a part of me is like, is it Gen X that's coming up and like people are like, we need like wanting to hold up classic literature that maybe they felt the generation before them wasn't engaging with? I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think (laughs) I had to read this in high school. What if I made a cool version of it? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how much like how many adaptations and especially now we don't really get very many like you said um she's the man which was the amanda Bynes soccer film Mm -hmm. and then there's still the early 2000s much ado about nothing by joss whedon Mm -hmm. and i think the most recent one that i can think of is that maybe somewhat mainstream is there's a version of macbeth with um, Michael Fassbender, mm-hmm. but that was like, what if a war film? Yeah. Um, and technically, The King, which is a Timothy Chalamet Netflix, Netflix film, film, is one of the Henrys. I don't remember which one, mm-hmm. um, but is is based on there as well. And then the other one I can think of is we're getting another Macbeth adaptation with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand by a Cohen by Joel Cohen. <laughs> yeah. Just one. Just one. Not Ethan. Just one. I so I'm why. very curious. What happened? I'm like maybe Ethan's just like um, I don't know Shakespeare. No thanks. You you go, buddy. I'll take a break. We did the Odyssey already. <laughs> yeah, right. I had to read that book, Joel. <laughs> like seriously. Yeah, I'm fascinated though because I love Denzel as well, and so one Denzel working with a Cohen on board, and two Denzel as Macbeth. 
on board. Like, I think that's going to be really interesting. Yeah. Can I make a hot take? Yeah, what, what's up? I have no idea anything about Macbeth's character in that, because Lady Macbeth is, like, the only <laughs> thing that I can recall from that, because she's going nuts. He's just like, I want to take over Scotland. Yay. Yay. <laughs> does he want to take over Scotland, or does he do it because his wife is like, you're going you're gonna to take over Scotland. He's told by the, Witch. uh, the witches that he will do it. And she's like, you're going to do it. He does have ambition. His whole, okay. like, his flaw is pride and ambition. Okay. So, yeah. Um, doubling back to Richard III, this, this Do version. Do we have to? Do we have to? <laughs> I don't know if I have too, too much more to say other than to, like, praise Ian McKellen. Uh, also, it's the comeback of Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. always on the podcast. What a weird performance. It's not, a, it's also a very short-lived performance yeah. of spoilers for... <laughs> Oh, that's something to talk about here as well. This is, so the film's under two hours. Um, the play is not. So they definitely streamline the story. Yeah. And that does not help with the narrative in any way, shape, or form. It is very confusing. Yeah. Especially when they say everyone's names. And everyone's name starts with Earl, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, I don't know who that is. Also, Jim Broadbent is here playing the Duke of Buckingham. Yeah. And every time I'm like, Palace? Buckingham Palace? No, Great. just Buckingham. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maggie Smith's in here. Briefly. Yeah, she yeah. plays the mom. Yeah. Who, okay, she plays the mom of... Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen. And I looked it up and I was like, hmm, they are five years apart in age. She can do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you aged a lot faster back then. <laughs> um... Yeah, I think Ian McKellen is actually very good. I, I think do. giving him Shakespeare is very good. Even, like, the cut to, like, <sighs> we break the fourth wall. A be- lot. Yeah, and, like, in a play, you have to, <laughs> you have to, like, have, you, ha- you have your inner monologue and you say it out loud because otherwise the audience doesn't know what's going on. Specifically and especially in Shakespeare, mm-hmm. that happens all the time. And so, like, when you're watching a play, it makes more sense. Cut to cut to camera, like, the first time I went, okay. And then, like, the second time I was like, it's fine. I understand what's going on now. Like, <laughs> and so, like, e- like, even that is done. He he handles it well. Yes. This film, I think, why you should maybe revisit Richard III is if you are somebody who enjoys Ian McKellen as a performer mm-hmm. and would like to just see his work. Um, I think that's the only real purpose of this film as a showcase for that performance. And that really feels like that's the true true story because, like I said, he had done it successfully on the West End and it was this big phenomenon. So it seems to make sense that somebody was like, well, if this was a phenomenon here, can we cash in on the Shakespeare and Ian McKellen trends and, like, let's go. Um, And that's really the purpose of this movie. And for that... I enjoyed watching it because I the way like you said they handle the soliloquies. His performance is particularly good um, and engaging. And even though everybody around him is struggling, struggling, <laughs> Jim Broadbent also is fine in his role. But Jim Broadbent succeeds when he gets to be more theatrical. When when he's a little bit bigger, a little bit broader. There's also a lot of American actors playing these British characters, and I'm like, no, there are enough. There, 
I think this here's another issue I just have with this film is that there are so many Shakespearean trained actors mm-hmm. that you especially in the nineties yeah. we we're making all these Shakespeare movies <laughs> they're like, everywhere why can't you get one of them to like do, like I'm sorry Robert Downey Jr. you're not very good <laughs> yeah, no he's not and so like why couldn't we have like an actual British person doing this and Annette Benning is like Annette Benning an actual Annette Benning performance that doesn't bother me it bothers me. <laughs> I was I just it looks like she is struggling with her accent you're it, not wrong it seems like that that is what she is like most focused on and like her accent is fine whatever but like like I gotta get these words out how do I do my THs <laughs> yes it is clear that Benning and Downey Jr. in particular are struggling with the language I think mm-hmm. um, and I, I think everybody everybody can a- attempt and do Shakespeare I'm fine with that as well but I'm also of I'm in for my profession I'm in a little bit of a, of a, a minority opinion of the fact that like I don't think accents really add anything I think they pretty much only take away from something I don't super care if like it's set in England and you sound American. That doesn't ever bother me or take me out of it. Like, if you are doing your job correctly mm-hmm. in emoting and, and building your physical character and being honest and really connecting with your partner and telling the story, an actor's job is to be the storyteller. If you're doing all that correctly... I don't really care which is like the the terms of your accent. No, Doctor Strange has to be a New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We gotta give him this gravelly voice that just sounds like House MD. <laughs> yep. That being said, mm-hmm. when an accent is done well, great. Yeah, I mean, like, like, no. like we. I mean, like we got Spider Man who like. Sounds fine. And yeah. we're like, we're all like, yeah, okay, Tom Holland, you can be a British boy at times, but you can also <laughs> My number one person of like accent work that has always shocked me in movies has been Kate Winslet, because like every time she's in a movie, I'm like, yes, this is where you're from. And then I was like, You're you're British? That's she's just good at it. Okay. Good job, Kate Winslet. Yeah. Have you seen the East, the Mayor of... I really liked Mayor of East Town. <laughs> I haven't seen it. But... Um, I don't super get into a lot of these shows, but because I like Kate Winslet and I, there was a couple of podcasts that were going to talk about it, I was like, cool. I like, I caught it six episodes in and I thought we were done. You know, the thing that I want to, the reason why I want to see it most is because the Way Way Back writer, mm-hmm. creator, right, like is the creator of this as well. And so, like, what I like about The Way Way Back, side Way Way Back, is that it takes all the tropes of sports films. The Way Back. Oh, yeah. The Way Way, way back. back is a different movie. You're right, The Way Back. Yeah. Sorry, Ben Affleck. Is that it takes all the tropes of, not all the tropes, but it takes tropes of sports films and it changes them and makes yeah. it far more realistic. Some of the ideas and themes in The Way Back are present in the Maribee's Town. I, I will say I think they're explored better. Um, but yeah, also, it's a, it's a limited series. It's a limited right? series. You have so, seven episodes as opposed to two, two hours. hours. Um, so similar themes. So alcoholism and death of a child. <laughs> ding 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 ding! <gasps> Survey says number one answer. Number one answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I know it's like it's like supposed to be like like a crime mystery with yeah. things, and so like. What else? It can't be about yeah. basketball. Oh. <laughs> wait, wait. What? Maybe it is. Does it, doesn't it 
take place in Britain? Do they play basketball? No. <laughs> East Town is in Pennsylvania. Oh my god. Yeah. It's called East Town? Yeah. I keep calling it Eastwick, and that sounds British. No, there are witches there. <laughs> hey folks, my name is Kylie Gausher, and I am here to be the geography expert. <laughs> oh my gosh, please become a cinematic geography expert. Like, just have a map of all the fictional places. Let's talk about Dagobah. <laughs> I can tell you where that is. As you can tell, we have a lot to say about 1995's Richard the Third. Like, I guess, like, the, I think my, I think my review was like this. No, that that was not my review. Um, like, to be honest, this feels like, like you're a you're a drama teacher, and like you're not gonna be there that day. And the kids, like, they already finished up their last scene. You're not ready to give them a new scene, so it's like, okay, you're gonna watch some like. Shakespeare, but they're gonna like throw they're gonna throw a wrench into it, so it's yeah. just a little bit different. And like that's that's pretty much all they're like. Oh. Yeah. Um, if you were in some way informed, like you like Richard the Third, you're into Shakespeare, you like Ian McKellen or any of the performers named, go for it. But it's not like a great movie by any means. There is a reason why time has forgotten this movie. Also, the whole time I know why you didn't choose this film. I know I didn't choose the film that I'm going to name, but as I was watching this and, like, the themes that you're exploring, I'm like, okay, like, Apt Pupil deals with the same themes. Uh, have you heard of Apt Pupil? I have. I'm not the most familiar with it. Okay, well, here's why you don't pick it. Okay. Brian Singer's the director. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, but yeah. anyways, it's, it's, it's about, like, Ian McKellen and fascism and Nazism right. and stuff. And right. so, like, as I was watching this, I kept going back to that film, and I was like... I also was trying to, as I was picking things as well, I was, I know this is a Nazi allegory. I understand that. But I was trying to not directly pick Nazis. Because mm-hmm. there's other forms of fascism. Because there were other forms of fascism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. I, that, that one's just the most, Nazism is just the most portrayed in yeah, media. Yeah. So. Um, all right. Let's move on to our our most recent film of the four. 2004? 2003? Okay. Yeah, you were close. You are very close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it comes from a boring time in life. <laughs> Lost. From my senior year of high school. Um, Lost in translation. Sofia Coppola's 2003 <laughs> film starring... Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson, as well as uh, small performances by Giovanni Ribisi and Anna Ferris. Yes. I picked this movie, so the interior. This was more of an interior thing for me. Like, if I, in any time that like I get one of those like questions where it's like, "What's your greatest fear?" My answer is being alone. Um, I don't like it. It's not good. My mental health was the worst when I lived by myself. Um, and I, it's just like, I know myself and I know what I like. And so the, the idea of being isolated and lost, um, on your own is really terrifying to me. Um, and I realize that that is not true for everybody. And some people actually thrive and survive and really like to be in that scenario. Um, that is just not me. Make I, no yeah. commitments to anyone. <laughs> hold no relationships to any people. Live free, die young, party hard. And then I think that the other thing that is 
true about about this movie that is also maybe a little bit true about me is like the 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 real thing that would be there is if I if I were to put myself into some form of like self-isolation and I would like cut myself off from the people that try to care about me. Um, that's not something that I would willingly or actively do, but like if I ended up doing that, I would I know myself and I would be very upset and afraid and things along those lines. So that's where the themes of Lost in Translation come in for me as a film that I think is has been hard for me to watch over the years because of the way that those themes are explored are very present. I would say that this overarching law, uh, this overarching theme of being lost and being lonely in the world around you is the central theme of what the movie is focusing on. If it's about anything, it's about finding yourself amongst, um, amongst the world in which you can be lost in. Or, I mean, like, this isn't explored, but it's like the set, it's the, it's the preset mm-hmm. of being lost even though you're with, uh, being lost even though you're surrounded, being alone while yeah. surrounded with others still. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that, that is how Scarlett Johansson's character is first presented, where she is alone even though, like, she's there in Japan with her husband. I know that he's working and all that. Right. Um, and, but- like, but it's still like even though I'm, even though she's able to call her friends and like or her therapist, I don't. She has a phone call with someone. I think it's her mom. Her maybe? Mo- okay, her mom. Yeah. Um, still being lost even though you're surrounded by people. Whereas Bill Murray is uh, alone because he is just alone. Because he's alone. He's having issues with his marriage. They both are having issues with their marriage. It's very standard for Bill Murray. It's very standard like. The reasons he's feeling this way is midlife crisis, and that is that is the reason kind of given and explored, and his arc and journey is to get over that midlife crisis. Is he a father figure to Sofia Coppola? Because she uses him quite a bit. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which makes me wonder about Ford. <laughs> Francis. That's his name, <laughs> not Ford. <laughs> Ford Coppola. Um, which also then makes me like, the relationship in this movie is curious. Yeah. Um, is On the Rocks a daughter-father? Yes. And I think that is more... A movie that is more... That more successfully explores a father-daughter relationship than this. This, I hope, is not supposed to explore a father-daughter God, relationship. God, I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, so the basic kind of plotty things of Lost in, Lost in Translation, there's not a lot. It's a typical Sofia Coppola film and, like... There's a loose structure that's just kind of thematic theme that, that's there for her themes. But uh, Bill Murray is an actor. He's in Japan. and He's a washed up actor. He's a washed up actor. He's now selling whiskey. Yes. Like. Yeah. The like, best part of his career is behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's still trying to work to support um, his family, which he doesn't super seem to care for. Um, and then he meets, um, Manic Pixie Dream Girl, uh, Scarlett Johansson. I don't think she's Manic. She's, like, depressed Pixie well, okay, Dream Girl. okay, fair enough, fair enough. Depressed Pixie Dream Girl, <laughs> um, Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. Though I will say that we actually get to know her more. That's probably an unfair criticism of the movie, but it feels like the time period, because, like, Garden State is right around the corner from this movie, where, like young quirky women are just there to help you through your midlife crisis dude 
Um, and that's what she's here for in some ways. But he meets her, and um, she's also struggling with her relationship and marriage. I think that it's maybe explored that Giovanni Ribisi just wasn't the right person for her in that way. Anyway, she's struggling also, and there's, they there's weird, talk. There's two weird hints. Yeah. And I don't, I, I'll, I'm gonna be honest. Or there's weird hints about like Anna Ferris and Rubisi. Mm-hmm. Like, I never understand their relationship. I'm gonna be honest here. I've tried to watch this film twice and I fell asleep both times. It is, I, I, gosh, it's a film that I have been told for my entire life, not my entire life, for my entire film Twitter life, that Lost in Translation is a great film and if, like, should be on the, the, the 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 pedestal of the Mount Rushmore of films. So, here's my issue with calling things the Mount Rushmore of things because oh, okay, okay Sorry. it's yeah. it like we can still do it, but we have to be more intentional because the reason why the four presidents are picked there is that they all represent something specific. And I don't remember what they represent, but it's like the beginning is Washington. Something, some the preservation, preservation's Lincoln, and then something, some infrastructure or something. And I think if we do the Mount Rushmore of things, okay. we need to follow those themes. Oh. It'll make it more interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Instead of just being the four best, because right. like those presidents aren't the four best, but like one of them is, <laughs> but like the rest of them, I'm kind okay, of like. Okay, because it's Washington, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. and it's the fourth. Jefferson. Jefferson. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, like, I, I, you know, we can still do that, but some, we gotta, we're gonna be more, we're gonna be more intentional. <laughs> intentional. Okay, great. Yeah. Rather than it. just the four best, because I think that's what we have been doing. Yeah. And that's not what we're here for anymore. So rephrasing, the Lost in Translation is held the, up in the Hall of Fame. Yes. Yeah. And like for me, like, and I, I. Don't like to talk poorly about Sofia Coppola just because, like, you know, she's one of our like more famous female directors, um, and more well regarded as well. And so, yeah. like, like for that, like, and and I hate this. I hate that I feel like I can't criticize. <laughs> I can't criticize things because it's like, well, you know, I don't want to put down someone who is in the minority who. Like is making waves, especially with this film being coming in a time where it was even more of an outlier that she made a well-respected film. Yeah, so like I mean that's always the issue with Sofia Coppola. I'm a lot more comfortable like when it's me and Anne driving down the road, and I'm like I don't really like Sofia Coppola that much. Um, maybe I should say like I don't like her film. I shouldn't say I don't like Sofia Coppola. <laughs> I don't like her films most right. of the time. You know, if she's out there and she's doing work and it's like it's engaging for some people and like she is making waves, I think that that is good. And so like yeah. Sofia Coppola um, as like a force of nature, I am much more supportive of her movies. They're just not my thing. They're not your cup of tea. No, they. <laughs> This it like it has one tone, yeah. And when it diverts from that tone, it's usually to do things that I find is making fun of Japanese culture. Um, when she does like, it feels like when they are trying to do scenes of levity or scenes of like humor, mm-hmm. it seems like it's at the expense of a lot of the of Japan. I agree because I understand like like setting it in Japan, the cultures between. America and Japan are different. And if you 
go to Japan, you could face culture shock. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the intention that they were trying to do. And I think that at times it is successful. And I think at some, at times it is 2003, like how we view other cultures. And I like, for me, I was just like, man, this moment of levity you're trying to do where you're trying to change the tempo, you're trying to change the beats. It falls completely flat. Yes, I I 100% support and agree, and I do think those are the biggest faults of this movie for me. It seems like whenever Sofia Coppola wants to change the tone, she's like, aha, karaoke scene. And that's all we do. We just sing karaoke, and that's how we're going to represent our feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is, that is a problem with the film. I do think that in terms of race relations, it's a problematic film. Um, I wouldn't, again, say that it's intentional, and I wouldn't ever, I wouldn't even say that I think Sofia Coppola holds any sort of ill will or negative feelings towards anybody in the Japanese culture. But I do think she has a very white-centric, and specifically white-privilege-centric, point of view on visiting another culture. To go to the lengths of to create a movie that is based around these two white characters visiting another culture and the point of the movie is how isolated and alone they feel rather than exploring the culture that is around them but just saying that like we are the white american pillars and you need to conform to us is very problematic and is racist and you can like the fact about it is like you could even like even with America has so many different like cultures and uh, and like not even like cultures but like different subgroup of like what the American culture is mm-hmm. that like even like if I go to probably like the south I am going to feel isolated in that way like it is a natural thing of for when you go to a different place that's outside of your like comfort or it's just different you kind of like self isolate and it, it, and I don't necessarily have as much of an issue of like an American following an American in a foreign country, but showing like reverence and respect to that culture is what needs to happen. Um, it doesn't it doesn't need to be one is better than the other. It is okay to show that they are different, but and it's okay to show that while I am here, you know, I do feel like a bit of an outsider, mm-hmm. but like I just like there just needs to be something to engage with the culture, to show, or to even celebrate the differences in some way. But it makes yeah. me wish that two things: one, that there would have been more uh, more Japanese artists working creatively on the film, mm-hmm. because I think that some of these problems could have been avoided if that was two. And two, if the Scarlett Johansson character was somebody who was from Japan. And I think that in terms of centering this, uh, this narrative around feeling isolated in a, in a different culture, but then finding something that helps you feel less isolated, I think it would go a long way for that something to be something that is representative of the culture that you're feeling lost in. Does Scarlett Johansson still play that character? No. <laughs> I'm only, folks, I'm only making this joke because of Ghosts in the Shell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it absolutely. Was, it was just too it good. It was there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, she could play a tree, though. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. okay with her playing as any tree that she wants. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. The, so, 
That being said, and I, th- I do think that colors a lot of this film mm-hmm. and a lot of its viewing as well. This was the first time I've ever made it through the film in, all the way away in one sitting. One sitting. It's it's it's. It is. It is. A, I I will say that I do think this is a good movie, and I do think it is well made. And to kind of double to my relationship with Sofia Coppola, I. I think we're maybe in a little bit of a similar boat, but I I tend to like her films more. You probably see like art. You see the art that she's presenting yes. a lot more than yeah. Like my favorite, like I I, you know, unfortunately, my favorite film of hers is probably The Bling Ring, which is like the most left field of hers. But also, that is a very well respected mm-hmm. film in her canon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I also like The Beguiled. Like, yeah. and I I think that a lot of that is the performances and like. There's actually a plot to the Beguiled. It's nice. <laughs> it's really nice when you have a plot. It's really uh, nice when you don't just have wispy Crispin Dunn's like looking into the camera and saying, wuss, wuss, wuss. <laughs> I like character studies also. However, I do think Sofia Coppola has a, a style of movie that she likes to make. And she's going to make that style of movie. And go for it. And go for know? it. And if people love that and are on board with that, then I am power to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to give space to artists like Sofia Coppola, who is very technically gifted and very much has a specific point of view. And we do this all the time to men. Well, do you know- so why can't we do it to women as well? Well, you know why she's so technically gifted? It's because she plays one of Padme's handmaidens. Absolutely. In, in, Star War- in Phantom menace and so she's there the whole time she's watching uncle george yep and she learns not from francis ford (laughs) no not from her father you learn i have learned you learn better not from your parents but Uh from other people to take your joke and to actually make it something to something as well she grew up on film sets you know like (laughs) she absolutely knows the the ins and the outs of what it means to be on and make a movie. It's it's literally in her upbringing. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that like her films are technically very well crafted. And I think she has a very specific way of communicating um, the way she sees the world. It just happens to be a point of view that for me can get a little bit tiresome and repetitive. It is actually why a film like On the Rocks, her most recent film, is a film in her canon that I really enjoy because it feels different. It feels like she let Rashida Jones, who plays the lead character in there, have a little bit more say in some of the structuring of the scenes and how it was so like... Even though we're exploring some similar Sofia Coppola um, themes, we're doing it from from a different point of view, and and I appreciate that about that movie. Is it one of her better movies? I don't know, probably not. Is it one of them that I would revisit more often? Yeah, totally. Josh, she only has like seven movies. Right. Can, let's rank them. Okay, you have to do it. I haven't seen most of them. Okay. Um. We've got somewhere on the rocks, the bling ring, the beguiled, Marie Antoinette, Virgin Suicides, and Lost in Translation. So I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen six of them. Six of them. Which one? You haven't seen... Somewhere. Somewhere. It's the one that I watched the trailer and I was like, I know what this movie is. I just can't right now. Um, okay, can I look at the list real fast? But Elle Fanning's in it. Yes. That's why she comes back for the... Oh, I also... I cut out a very Murray Christmas because I don't yeah, think that's no, real. Yeah, no, fair enough. 
Um, okay, I will say the one that I haven't seen in a long time is Marie Antoinette. Um, and I remember actually liking Marie Antoinette. Okay, so number one. Um, I would... Okay, so for me, it's The Beguiled. I think it's her most successful film. Um, and then I would maybe go... I feel like I have so many of these movies at, like, the same levels of star rating. Three. Um, <laughs> three and a half to four. Well-made movies that maybe didn't always connect with me. Okay, so just, just going off my gut reaction of looking at this... Um, the Beguiled, Marie Antoinette, Lost in Translation, The Bling Ring, On the Rocks, The Virgin Suicides. I also don't like that film. I Again, I have no strong feelings towards, like, it. I, like, remember thinking, like, sure, it's got some interesting thoughts and concepts, but, like, kind of roughish one. But it's boring! Yeah. Um... So yeah, just a just a director who I'm I'm glad exists, but I'm not like the biggest mega fan that there's ever been of her as a director. So I mean, I guess maybe I don't know. I was going to like, "What? So why is this why is this the film that we hold up so much? Like not we, but like film society. Why is this her one that everyone is like this is the film?" Is it because do they connect with the lonely characters? Do they like I don't I I I just I personally struggle to have a real emotional connection with a lot of this film. I think and, the answer is Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Um, I think that in looking at his canon as a performer, um, this I mean I would absolutely hold this up as one of the better performances in Bill Murray's career. Yeah, the the performances are fine. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that. We want to revisit this one and hold this one up as a, as a really great work of art because of the 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 ins and the outs of the people that are around it. And I do think that it is truthfully out of all the ones that I've seen, this is the one that comes together most clearly as a train of thought, mm-hmm. as an an actual movie, and it holds up as as a structure in that way. I I like the journey these characters take whether you know we've talked about the issues with that journey but i I do like that what we're exploring and like when i thought about movies that explore the ideas of loneliness this was the first one that popped into my mind um and so I, i do think that there is a cultural footprint with this movie whether it be maybe because it kind of a return for him for like being in it's kind of like a return of good bill murray Mm -hmm. i know he's already got he already had rushmore and royal tenenbaums but like i forgot he was in rushmore and royal tenenbaums he has a pretty small part yeah rushmore is is definitely is a much more like comeback yeah yeah, absolutely but like lost in translation being the main character, I think is, and it's it's his only real serious shot in an Oscar run that he's ever had, mm-hmm. um, and I, I do think that that is something that's really helpful. Also, in looking at two thousand three, um, and kind of we're a couple years after nine eleven, and as a society, I do think we're feeling a little lost and alone. We've been sitting with our feelings on what happened and the fallout 
and all of those things. And we are coming through this moment where we're on the verge of an election in which we're going to have to figure out, do we want more of the same or do we want to change? Like, and, and as a culture, I just remember, even though I was a senior in high school, it felt like we didn't totally have this identity. It felt like we were trying, we were arguing with each other, we were trying to figure things out. So I think that in this, like the bigger cultural moment, this film sticks out as dealing with a lot of issues that I feel that a lot of people were dealing with at the time. I'll accept that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe that's why it's held up as her kind of big masterpiece of a film. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of right timing. I mean, there. I don't remember the name of this theory or this like idea that that they're the. But like every artist is gonna have like their peak or their zenith, where like they're just in the moment and everything they're doing is clicking with culture. And then at some point, it's going to wane and then you're going to go down. And no matter what you do, whether it's like the greatest thing you've ever done, it's just not connecting with the culture in the same way. So your popularity is not going to rise back up as well. There are artists that have peaks and valleys, you know. They but... have to be willing to adjust to the... Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little story about this kind of crazy artist. His name is Andy Warhol. Great. He had a he had a theory that everyone gets fifteen minutes uh, of fame. Uh-huh. Uh, essentially, that's yeah. That's what you yeah. describe. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think that there are are values of this film that that make it be worthwhile and watching. I think if you want to be a part of the the film culture community, having an opinion on Lost in Translation is certainly helpful. certainly something that will be helpful. <laughs> Um, just have the right opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the right opinion. Whatever you feel is true <laughs> in your heart. Um, I do also think that this is a big moment for Scarlett Johansson um, because I think this is a transition moment for her from being a kid, a kid actor to an adult actor, even though she's eighteen in this movie. Oh my gosh, she's literally eighteen. Her character, I think, is supposed to be older than actual Scarlett Johansson's age. But actual Scarlett Johansson is 18 in this movie. I don't... I can't do that. Which... Okay, so can I I ask a question? Because, like, maybe... Maybe I just am, like, so... I just... Their relationship is supposed to be romantic? Here's my thought. Yeah. He, she gets angry because he has a night with the karaoke singer. The uh-huh. lounge singer. Yeah. Something. The lady. The lady. Yeah. Well, why does she get jealous if yeah. not for it being a romantic relationship? I mean, I think the the argument for why... I think you're right. I think you're right. But I will say I think the argument is, is like they were the only... They were connecting with each other. And then she's upset that there is another connection, but your argument is right. Um, so that ew feels icky. It feels weird, yeah. Feel, yeah, like don't don't like. Um, and that is maybe something also that has kept me at a distance from this movie because I think had they made an adjustment to it just being some form of 
mentor, mentee, or just friends. They could just be friends. But no. Yeah. So, they're a little icky vibe off this movie as well. Well, everyone, what do you think? <laughs> Comment below. <laughs> do you get an icky vibe off Lost in Translation? <laughs> yes. Cool, cool. Awesome. Well, that's been our conversations about Richard III and Lost in Translation. I think this is the perfect conversation. It is. Josh, Absolutely. Josh, yeah. don't think that this was a bad episode. There were some gems. I think there is some good episodes here, good things here. Um, Yeah, and I think that, yeah, I enjoyed the... We wish you picked for that reason. Um, All right, number uh, number four is Richard the Third. Number three is Lost in Translation. Number two is Judgment Day, and number one is Kramer versus Kramer. Same order. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I. There's just there's. Yeah, I. There's, I think it was just really clear this month. <laughs> I, I do think that. Um, it would be, there is a conversation that some folks would have to put T2 above Kramer versus Kramer, just in the sense of that there's a lot of love for Terminator 2. A revolution, it, I mean, I don't know if it revolutionized, but it seemed to have a big impact yes. on, like, action. Absolutely it did. And revolutionized is a word. It's okay. a good word to use and describe it. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I do think there's an argument to be made. I also think there's an argument to be made that people would put Lost in Translation Higher. up at the top of this we're just, as well. We're heathens, Josh. We're just heathens. I think no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, we can all agree that out of these four movies, Richard III is fourth. I think we can agree to that. We've done it. We found unity among the world. It's okay, Josh. Next week, you're going to reign supreme. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about next month's movies. Uh, That way you can watch along ahead of time if you would like to as well. We have decided on our category, which is a subcategory, a subgenre of, I'm going to say, my favorite genre of movies. And I bullied you into this. (laughs) Um, So we are doing very specifically New York City musicals. Boy, did we pick (laughs) definitely Um, exactly what you would expect. (laughs) So there is a ton of musicals that take place in New York City for reasons we'll get into during the episode itself. Um, But for your watching purposes, uh, the two movies that I have selected are In the Heights, which is available on HBO Max and in theaters right now, and uh, Funny Girl, which I have not looked up where it is available, but those are the two that I have. Have you seen Funny Lady? I have not. It's the sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it, it that's what I should have picked. (laughs) (laughs) And I picked On the Town and Hair. Uh, on the Town, I know, is available on HBO Max as well, if you have that. Um, and I think all of them are available to rent on different streaming platforms as well. So. Hey, folks, you probably have a library. Hey! <laughs> they might just have it. Yeah. One of my favorite things about In the Town, actually, or On the Town, is that it was filmed on location in New York. Um, it was fil- filmed on the town. <laughs> on the town. So, but it's kind of fun to be like watching, like, what did 1940s New York look like? Because it's a contemporary piece. Or it's a most contemporary <laughs> piece. So. Contemporary for the setting of the yeah. film. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I have not seen either. I haven't, I've only seen Funny Girl and I've not seen any of these other films. Um, I am excited to uh, find out that there is a movie 
of hair. I'm excited <laughs> to know that it exists. Um, a rock musical yeah. about the 60s. Well, I went, Josh, I went through one website <laughs> and it had 10 of them listed and one of them was, like, I could have picked Little Shop of Horrors. I could have picked Rent. I could have picked Annie. We could have picked lots of things. We, we picked these. Yeah, I almost picked Oliver and Company. <laughs> Our first animated film on oh, this. Yeah. In this format. Yeah, in this format. Um, I will, again, we'll talk more about this next month. We'll let it go there. But I, I, I actually, for mine, I know I like, I know why I picked what I picked. And I really like what you picked as well. Because I think that on the whole, we're going to talk about New York City as represented in different entertainment. Times. Through different times. Yeah. Yeah, which would be great. And what what New York City means in a specific moment. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everyone. Oh, Josh does the outro, because I don't know what he ever says. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows, really? Um, All right, friends. uh, If you want to join the conversation, you can do so at friendofafriendpodcast.squarespace.com. Leave us a comment there. We'll definitely look at it, read it out loud, respond to you as well. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, where you can leave a five-star review or any star review. Again, we'll read it out loud if you're interested. Please share the podcast in any way that you can if you're interested in, like, getting more people to, to listen. Um, or if you just enjoy it being your own personal secret treasure trove, you can do that as well. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at DarbyACT. You can also find me on TikTok at DarbyACT. If you really want to go down the TikTok path, I have sometimes put movie opinions there and most of the time just cats. It's just my cat. Should I get into TikTok? Yes. Oh, gosh. It's hard. I Here's the hardest thing is that I'm trying to listen to what they say and I'm trying to read what they say. Well, okay. You just tap the screen, you pause it, you read it, and then you intake. That's how I do it. That's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. Your feed will be your own thing. Yeah. So, it's just going to be D&D. It's just going to be D&D. For, because yeah. I, get, I get sent scary TikToks from people that I don't appreciate. And then I get sent, haha, this is our D&D. And I say, no, it's not. <laughs> you, you can just... find Kylie having an existential crisis, um, but you can only contact her via a P.O. box yeah. that I... you have to send to her, yeah, and you... she will then email mail you. I don't want your actual address. Yeah. I don't need that. I yeah. need a P.O. box. Absolutely. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> or maybe I'll just... Hey. Maybe one day I'll, t- I'll give you a specific date and a time, and I'll go and I'll post a postcard on a public tree in the middle of a park, and you'll only have until someone takes it down to get it. That's how you contact Kylie. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate you. I've been Josh. I'm Kylie. Quack, 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 quack. quack, quack.